because these hymns are older than us, any of us, by the way. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would like you to take it and turn to the book of Mark, chapter 12. We are looking at verses 35 through 40 this morning. And you know, when there's a phrase out there, seeing how the sausage is made, or I ask for the time and you give me, you tell me how to make a watch or build a watch. Well, this is kind of one of those passages where, you know, we read it and we go, okay, I, I kind of get it. I, I don't know what it's talking about, but I'm, I'm still comfortable with my faith. But this is one of those that tells us really how all of this happens. All of Christianity holds together. And Jesus is using an, an old interpretation of an even older psalm, an older passage to unveil who the Messiah is. See, it's really critical to them, and it should be critical to us, to know who the Messiah is. So he challenges the natural logic of people's minds. He cha challenges and the discernment of the crowd. He's, he's putting this out there. He's almost like asking a riddle. And he calls out the scribes with this powerful prophecy that he points out this morning. So follow along as I read verses 35 through 40 of Mark chapter 12. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. He also said in his teachings, beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. They will receive harsher judgment. Let's pray. Father, this passage is... It's got some real meat in it, but it's also got some milk in it too for us. Help it, to, help it to feed our souls this morning as we learn who the Messiah is and that because of who he is, he can pronounce such judgments. Show us this morning where our hearts need to know this word and where it needs to change us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Christ uses an old interpretation or a, a, a poor interpretation, really. It's not 100% it's not incorrect, but it's not probably not even 50% right. And he uses this that the scribes have been promoting of this psalm. He's been, he uses it to uncloak the divine nature of the Messiah and what the Messiah, the Son of God, means and what he will do. And so Jesus, this morning in the sermon, I want us to get the idea that Jesus shows us here the, the fuller picture of his person, of who he is, what he will do, and why it matters to our eternal life. That's what I hope we can get from this. So what does Jesus reveal here that, that has been missed over a thousand years? Because that was when David wrote that psalm, over a thousand years before this point in time where we are. And then the, the interpretation. What does he show us about the interpretation that's, that's right or wrong? Well, Jesus makes two interpretations of this passage. So he gives them clear interpretations of this passage to demonstrate his divine omniscience. See, to look at a human being and think that person right there is omniscient is a really foreign concept to humans. But first of all, we have to realize that he is God the Son. Verses 35 through 37, the only answer to his question. Let me read those verses again. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? 
David himself says, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. Okay, so Jesus has been in the till. This is still Wednesday, by the way, of Passion Week, okay? Been a long day for Jesus, I'm telling you. Long day. He's, he's entertained five different encounters with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, all these people questioning his authority, questioning what he, he's doing, and he's endured that. And even some in the day before. So now Jesus has decided he's going to ask the questions. It's time for me to ask a few questions. He's wanting to teach and he's wanting to correct. And so Jesus uses this poor interpretation of Psalms 110 to kind of expose the incomplete meaning of the passage, the incomplete lessons about the Messiah. So he asks the question, how can the scribes say that the Messiah is the son of David? He asked that first, and he asked the same question after he quotes Psalms 110.1. So he's sandwiching that passage with a couple of riddle questions, kind of a, trying to make people think. Now, I want you to think back in all of the, our journey through Mark, every time a demon, a demon came out of a person or was in a person and saw Jesus, they would cry out, oh, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of God. And Jesus would go, shh, be quiet. Every time he would heal somebody and he would say, don't go tell anybody, just go, go and, and, and enjoy your healing. They would. They would go out and tell everybody and made it almost impossible at times for Jesus to, to enter a town without being mobbed by the crowd. Jesus has attempted since Mark chapter 1 to conceal his perfect and, and clear identity. He's a healer. He's a teacher. He's a rabbi. He's doing good things. He's correcting wrong things, but he's not revealed exactly who he is. He's tried to conceal his identity. He's always shifting the focus on God. He puts the focus back on God. He's like, that's what he's done. And, and if you read the book of John, you can see him do that so many times, how he submits to the Father's will. But he's been trying since the first chapter of Mark to control the revelation of who he is. But since blind Bartimaeus was healed back in chapter 10, he's accepted some of the vocalization of his identity. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, blind Bart cried out, called him son of David. Now, this is a clue to who he is. This is a clue to the answer of the question he's now asking the crowds and the scribes. The crowds that were coming with him in triumph into Jerusalem and shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, they shouted, our father David. They called him our father David. Another clue. And in the parable of the tenants' farmers, Jesus is the son that, God's, that the owner sends to get the fruit. So, so why is now Jesus allowing so much emphasis on his identity? Well, the one whom the disciples ask, you know, in chapter 4, verse 41, after he calmed the storm, who is this? He's now answering that question because he's now pointing to his identity. It is time for the truth to be fully revealed because when the next events happen, and we know what the next events are, the trials, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection, and then the ascension. When those events happen, his identity will be obvious, or it should be, to all who will see it. Now, back into the passage we go. The Pharisees, they have taught that the Messiah is the son of David, a human descendant only. Okay, that's all they've taught, that, that one of David's human descendants 
Their expectation is that he will come and be a king over Israel. It will be, be back to a national government, back to some sort of king on the throne of the, of the country of Israel. That's their interpretation. Now, the, the term son of David was never in Scripture as far as a reference toward the Messiah. But because of the covenant God made with David, saying you will always have someone on your throne and forever someone will reign over my people. Remember who my people is now. It's us, those who believe in Jesus Christ. But by, by the first century that we're in right here, rabbis have started using this term to describe the Messiah. The scribes taught it by using that covenant that God made with David. And their understanding was a human son. Their understanding was a physical, earthly throne, a national king. But this passage in Psalms 110 gives us a lot more than that. A lot more than that. Notice, David writes the Psalms using himself as the object, my Lord. He writes the Psalms using the, himself as the object of the psalm, but he writes in the Spirit. Now, I'm going to take a sidebar here and, and just remind you all, some, some people will tell you there's no Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That is not true. The Holy Spirit has existed before earth was created. The Holy Spirit is part of God. He has always been there. And here he steps in and he helps David write this thing. God has existed in three persons forever, and we need to realize that. But here the Holy Spirit guides David. And David writes... This phrase, the Lord declared to my Lord. Now that is a preposterous thought to an Israelite, okay? Because the only person that's Lord of the king is God. That's the only person. So now David is saying, my Lord. There's a Lord between him and God. The Lord, and that, that Lord in your, in your Bible, if you look at it, that Lord is probably, first one is probably all capitalized. And that's a way that the writers of the, of the or translators of the um, English Bibles, that's a way for them to indicate that he's talking about Yahweh. He's talking about the great I am that met, met Moses at the burning bush. They, they would put in Yahweh in, in Hebrew and Greek and those kind of things, or Jehovah. But in our English Bibles, you see the word Lord in all caps. And, uh, and that's the way they, so Yahweh speaks to the Lord who's over David. Now, that, that kind of, to us we go, okay, I, I kind of get that, because well, I know Jesus, so I get that. But they don't get that. They're like, wait, what? So David is king, there's no human lord over him, so who is this lord between David, the king of Israel, and God? Well, I'm glad you asked. If there is one God, and there is one king of Israel serves only him, then this lord over David must be God too. He must be God. He has to be God. He can't be anybody else. If, God, if David is serving God, then this Lord over David must be God too. So, hear it, hear it this way. I'm going to read it with a little different emphasis on some things. God the Father said to God the Son, David's Lord, the Messiah. That's, what, that's how you could expound that out where you can see all the, the antecedents or who the Lord is. God the Father said to God the Son who is David's Lord, who is also the Messiah. That's who's speaking. This is the only explanation for this part. The only answer to Jesus' question of how can the Messiah be the son of David is Jesus Christ. That's the only answer. And the Jesus has to be divine. He has to be God. So then David writes further in this passage, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
God puts David's Lord's enemies, or God puts David's Lord at his right hand. So that's the first part. Sit at my right hand. And not David. See, and that's what everybody in Israel thought. It was going to be David sitting at the right hand of God because David was the great king. No, it's a, the Lord of David who is between David and God. He puts him at his right feet. He says, sit down here at my right hand. And David's Lord sits at God's right hand until his enemies are completely defeated. Who are the enemies of David's Lord the Messiah. Who are those enemies? Well, understand this. First of all, David's enemies were never completely defeated, even in his reign. He died with still Philistines on one flank and, 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 and Arameans and, and all on another flank. And he died with a lot of enemies around him. Now, Solomon did a good job of, of spreading out the kingdom and, and pushing some of those enemies out away from him, but they soon came back. So the, all the enemies of Israel never did get wiped out. So who are these enemies? Well, we have to go to Scripture to discern this. So I'm going to read a couple of passages here. Psalms 49, 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. Sheol is just a Hebrew word for grave. For he will receive me. Hosea 13, 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of the grave? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 56-57, Paul pulls these together and he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the enemies of the Messiah? Sin and death. Those are the enemies that the Messiah must defeat, and that God says, I will put them under your feet. The Messiah took on these enemies for the sake of of humanity he had to take these enemies on because God wanted them done he wanted them defeated he wanted them beat down why because in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 right after Adam and Eve blew it in the garden God tells them I'm going to send someone a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent he's going to send someone and remember Satan is the keeper of death and sin of hell of, of the grave, what, all those things. He, is, he has been given dominion over that by God. And the curse that's on humans for violating God's law kills us. And the only way to satisfy that verdict, that sentence, is for perfect blood to be sacrificed. Perfect blood is the only way that we can be saved from that curse. So what kind of Messiah can defeat these kind of enemies? Only a divine Messiah. Only a Messiah who is God. Because there's no other perfection but God. There's no other perfection out there that qualifies. And the Messiah came to do just that. Only a, a perfect sacrifice of a life could pay the death sentence that's on our soul. That's David's Lord. And that's who God sent. The Messiah. The Messiah is divine. And this is, new, this is a revelation to them. Of course, they're probably, they still don't get it, and we'll talk about that in a minute. They really don't understand yet. So we come back to Jesus' inquiry. He quotes this passage, and then he says, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So he puts the, the, the riddle, it's like a sandwich, two pieces of bread, and in the middle is the meat. 
And the meat is Psalms 110.1. And like I said, one of the most quoted passages in all the New Testament. How can the Messiah be David's son? A son is never Lord over a father. Never. Never. Even if your, 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 your son is a king, he's never over your, the father in God's eyes. A son is never Lord over a father. And so Jesus' entire interrogation right here is about a human son who can be a Lord over a king, and he is the promised Messiah of God. So they have to, to solve this riddle, they have to kind of speculate. They kind of have to guess is probably not the right word, but they need to think about it and remove some natural boundaries. Anytime you ask a riddle, most of the time you have to, you know, realize that they're asking a different question than what you read when you first read the riddle or hear the riddle. Well, that's what Jesus is pushing them to do. You've got to pull some logic off of this. You've been taught that the Messiah has to be a human being only. You've been taught that. And you've also been taught that a human being can never be God. You've got to remove that, those chains on your mind and remember that the fact is, is that the Messiah is the Son of God, and he can defeat Satan, and he will be the Lord and the Son of David, and that's what the people miss. That's what the scribes have missed. The scribes and the people miss the fact that only a divine Messiah can save and defeat, can defeat Satan and be the Lord and the Son of David. There's only one answer that suffices, Jesus Christ. The Son of David is also the Son of God. God incarnate deity in the man Jesus of Nazareth. And so David, the human ancestor of, G of Jesus, and God, the divine father of Jesus, come together in one person, the man, Jesus of Nazareth. It's the only answer to Jesus' riddle, is that the Messiah must be supernatural. He must be divine. He must be God. So the people delighted in this. They were like, ooh, this is really good, but I don't think they got it. They just thought it was really cool that, they, that he stumped the Pharisees probably. The scribes probably had no answer for his question. No answer whatsoever because they've been getting it wrong for centuries. But the people were happy about that. They were glad that Jesus talked, but they still didn't really understand. They really didn't understand who Jesus is and why he came. At least yet they didn't understand. Why is Jesus the only answer to the question regarding the Messiah? Because only God can redeem a human soul. And Paul writes about this redemption in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. He talks about the fact that it was God the Son who had to come for us. We know this first part of this passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For... The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. See, the only way that we are not condemned by God is that God sent his son and we believe in him. We trust in him. God the son, we accept him taking our death sentence. Faith in Jesus Christ is the reason we're not condemned. And it came about by the divine Messiah. So now you're probably going, okay, I got all that, pastor. You know, Why is this important? What, what does it mean to us? How does it help us? In our faith. Well, 
without that, the fact that the only answer of Jesus to this question, we would never be able to escape eternal death. Death and sin would have us in its grips forever. And God did not want that. So understanding that the, the Messiah, the Savior that we trust in, had to be perfect, and he therefore had to be God. So Jesus is God the Son. He is fully God. He is fully man, which is why he could die for us. That's why he could die for us. And that's a great thing. He takes our death sentence. And the fact that Jesus is God means our souls are well protected. He's not, there's a, there's a lifetime guarantee on your salvation, okay? Because he's God. He's God. The fact that Jesus is God means our souls are forever protected. We can rest assured that God will save those of us who believe in Jesus Christ. That's our assurance. That's why we can say once saved, always saved. Once God has changed your heart and redeemed your soul by grace and faith, you're never going to lose it. But also this truth of the God-man Jesus supports the doctrines of Scripture, many doctrines of Scripture. First of all, the first one of the doctrines it supports is the Trinity. The Trinity. You'll never find that word in the Bible. We just use it because it means triunity. It means God is three persons in one. He's one God, but he is three persons represented to us with certain roles. Um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is wound up in this passage and in this truth that Jesus is trying to get across to them. Our salvation. Only God can save a human soul. Only God can defeat sin and death. Only God. Only God can pro provide the perfect blood to save our souls. And then sanctification, just a fancy word for getting better, doing better, growing in your, in your faith. God the Son sent God the Spirit to help us. See, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, 10 days later, he sent the Holy Spirit to us in, in the event called Pentecost. And because the Spirit is here, he helps us grow. He roots out the evil in us. He sifts us. He refines us. He also intercedes for us. Jesus intercedes for us. He mediates for us because he's at God's right hand. And that's important. And that's what this passage is telling us. Also, supernatural gifts. You know, because God, Jesus is God, God the Son, by the Spirit, he gives us each a gift of service that we are to use in the ministry of the gospel. Some it may be teaching, some it may be preaching, some it may be serving, some it may be leading, some it may be giving, some it may be administration. There's a lot of gifts that God gives, and you can read about them in Scripture. They're there. And then he also grants blessings of grace. He, 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 he provides fruit of the Spirit to us. We treat people differently. Hopefully you do. But that's one of the things he does. He, he makes our life realize that there's an eternal purpose to it, not just a temporal purpose to it. And the last thing that this doctrine or this passage teaches us, last doctrine, is the doctrine of heaven. There is a heaven. And Jesus went back to prepare a place for us so that we can go there and join him. And he promises to return one day, and he will. And he will return, and he will claim his church, those who believe in his son. Because there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name but the name Jesus Christ. He is the only way any human being can ever make himself right with the holy God. He is the only answer to any spiritual problem or dilemma you may face. It doesn't mean you won't have problems. It means he's the answer to your problems. He's the only answer to this question Jesus asked. He's the only answer to our problems. Because sin is always out there corrupting everything, 
Sin and death still rule in this world at times and drag us away and entice us to run away. Sin is always the culprit, but Jesus is always the victor. He's always winning, and we can trust that. So turn to Jesus for the way, the truth, and the life because he is the only answer. That's point number one. And because he's the only answer for our souls, he is also now we see the only judge for our souls as well. The only judge, verses 38 through 40. Let me read this. It's quite the subject change, but it's really not. He also said in his teachings, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. Now, only the Son of God, only God himself could pronounce that verdict, harsher judgment over some soul. He's already he just revealed that he is Messiah, the Son of God. He is divine. So let's look at this a little bit. Jesus makes this abrupt change of subject, and he gives out some very stern warnings. First of all, to the crowd, watch out for these guys, these Pharisees, these scribes. They're, they're misleading in a heartbeat. He's teaching them and warns them of the misbehavior of the scribes because he can judge them. And he also is now showing them that he can see them even when he's not looking at them because he's omniscient. He knows what's in their hearts. It's, it's already happened one time when they lowered the, the paralytic through the roof and these people were saying, how could he say, forgive him of his sins? He's, that only God can forgive sin. And he knew their thoughts. They didn't say it out loud. Jesus has already revealed that to a certain degree. He is the Messiah. So he points out many things that these, the people, the crowd, have already seen these things in the scribes. They're, this isn't newsflash to the crowd, okay? They've seen these, these Pharisees, these scribes, do these things. They wear fancy robes to be noticed. And usually they're long and they're flowing and they've got probably lots of ornate stuff on them. But they also have these long tassels and they're called prayer tassels. The Jews would wear them and the longer the tassel was, the more praying you had done. Anyway, they would, they would want greetings, acknowledgments, accolades in the marketplace. You would, almost, you would almost get punished or sometimes would get punished, like kicked out of the synagogue or whatever, if you did not acknowledge some rabbi, some teacher. If you didn't say, hey, rabbi such and such. It's funny to think Nicodemus and Joseph Arimathea had one point did these things, but they eventually saw their, their mistake. They must have the best seat. The best seat in the synagogue. Well, I'll give you a little picture of this. In the synagogues where the book of the scriptures were kept, the books or the scrolls of the Old Testament, there was a box there. They called it the ark, like in the temple. But this wasn't the ark of the covenant. It wasn't in the Holy of Holies. But there was a bench beside it or in front of it or near it. And that's where the, the scribes had to sit. Even if they weren't reading or preaching that morning, they had to sit there and be noticed. So they must have the best seat. In the synagogues. They wanted the honored guest spots at banquets and festivals. I mean, this, this uh, culture then is a very hospitable culture, very social culture. So the, this Pharisee or scribe could just show up someone's door, knock, and they had to give him food. They had to seat him, seat him and, and provide for him. And then if he, he showed up at a banquet that he wasn't even invited to, they still couldn't turn him away. That's how arrogant they were. They wanted the honored spot at these things. 
their prestige must be rewarded. That's the way they treated the people. And they used their power and their positions to oppress the weak and the powerless, which is where we get the devouring of widows' houses. And that word really in the Greek is devour, meaning like swallow whole. Like they would just come and take over, hostile takeover. We, we're, we're used to hearing on the news. How would they do this? Well, they would either abuse the hospitality to the point where the widow could no longer support herself, could no longer keep her house and pay for the, the, the needs of it. That's one way they would do it. The other way is somehow in, in the estate settlement after the husband passed away, these guys would require more taxes or more offerings or fees or whatever. Sometimes they would be the executor of the will for the, for the guy, the husband that passed away, and somehow they would twist everything around and wind up with her house. It's tragic, the abuse of power that went on there. Sometimes they used it in collecting a debt that they claimed the widow owed. And then they would pray these wordy prayers to sound pious. But their actions already destroyed their prayers. Their prayers were useless to God because God knew what their actions were. And none of the people listening to their prayers really listened to them anyway because they were, they were hypocrites. All of these are crimes of hypocrisy. Born out of pride, born out of position, born out of what you want in life. They had a complete disregard for the justice and mercy of God. They misused their heritage because these are all descendants of, the, of the, the son of Jacob, Levi, which makes them the priests. So they're all descendants of Levi, and they took that heritage and their position in the religion of the Jews and misused it to abuse them. In other gospel accounts, Jesus takes in a much longer text and pronounces several woes, he calls them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And it's, Matthew is where that is, I believe. And it's long and it's very, very frank and very blunt. But here, Jesus issues just a more direct verdict. These will receive a harsher judgment. They will receive a harsher judgment. They will scrutinized by God harder. Well, why? Because God gave them a privilege. He gave them an opportunity. He gave them a position and a status that was not theirs to earn. They could not earn it. They weren't there because they were such great people. They were descendants of Levi. God gave them that privilege, and they abused it. They misused it. So they will be judged much harsher, much harsher. They led the people away from God, not toward God, by their actions. They were meant to lead the people to God and teach them to obey See, it's an honor to be God's spiritual instructors. If you're given the opportunity to teach the Bible, it's an honor. But it's a privilege with a heavy responsibility as well. But God will equip you to do that too, if he's calling you to do that. I mean, God calls anyone to lead in people in his ways. It's a grace gift that comes with great blessings, but also great responsibility. And they messed up. Jesus says they... And, he, and remember, he's the divine Messiah. He says they're going to be judged very harshly for their mistake. See, Jesus is kind of like coming out from behind the veil in a sense in this essence. He's revealed that he's divine, even though they're not seeing it yet. And then that he is also going to be the judge. One time when I was taking a college class, I had a professor, and we didn't know she was the professor. We were just all sitting there waiting for the professor to show up. And we were talking and cutting up for about 15 minutes. We're like, how long do we wait for this professor? 
And someone said, well, do they have a doctorate or do they just have a master's degree? How long? We started talking about all of that. And about 15 minutes later, this person that had been participating in our conversation stood up and went up to the front of the classroom. And she was now the professor. She had been doing this. It was a sociology class, so this explains why she did it. She was looking to see how we interacted and what was going on in the class and see if she could learn something that she wouldn't normally learn as the professor. But she went up to the front of the class and she was now in charge. She was in charge of our grades. She was in charge of our coursework. Um, it was funny, but weird. But she did that. Well, the same is happening right here. These guys don't really realize that, I don't think, but the judge has just been revealed. The guy that they just equated to some teacher, some loose cannon rabbi, has now become the judge, the only judge. Like I said, I don't think they realize it yet. But one day... They will. And John writes about the last day when everybody will know who the judge is. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That day is coming someday when the great throne, white throne of judgment will take place. And people will be standing there going, but, 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 I, I did, I did, I did, I did. As Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, but Lord, didn't we fill in the blank with some good stuff, but you didn't believe in Jesus. Your name was not written in the book of life. But we will all be judged one day, even those of us who are believers. We will be judged. Our, our deeds, good and bad, will be portrayed. I don't know if it's going to be a, a movie screen. I mean, people talked about it like that, but we will be confronted about our lives, our actions, what we've done. All people will be judged one day for crimes, for hypocrisies, for missteps, for sins. We will all be before Jesus and face those things. Our actions will be judged. But those whose name is written in the book of life will be saved. We will not be cast into the lake of fire. So when we face the judgment, what crimes will be revealed in your heart? We must remember we are all hypocrites. We really, we really do. The Greek word hypocrite is just the word for actor believe it or not, acting like something. We're all hypocrites, really. Hypocrites are anyone who is acting like they are righteous, but doing something that is unrighteous. And we're all guilty of that. Yours truly, okay? These crimes of the scribes, these just scratch the surface of the crimes of hypocrisy that are out there. I mean, they abuse their positions, but no, you may not have stolen a widow's house or kicked orphans to the street, okay? That, that may not have happened in your life, but there's plenty of things I'm pretty sure we've done. Um, we've all done things to get attention. We've all done things to get attention. We've all envied the seats of power, the seats of prestige, or some sort of prestige. We've all thought more highly of ourselves than we should, we have. We should not, but we do. It's our nature. We've probably prayed from insincere motives, wore styles of clothing to get people's attention. No, I don't wear a tie to get your attention, okay? I like wearing ties. We've exaggerated our importance. 
We've, we have. Now, let me, let me add a little caveat here. Jesus is not saying clothes are bad, okay? And long robes are bad. He's not saying that. He's not saying that being greeted in the marketplace is wrong. He's not saying that sitting in a, a good seat in church or a good seat at a, at a banquet is wrong or, or bad. He's not saying that. Understand what he's saying. He is speaking about motives. And motives come from in here. Motives are not something that just forces itself on us. It's what our heart really wants. Their motives were wrong for all those things. If they got them because they were a humble servant of God and they got greetings in the marketplace and they got offered the seats of honor at banquets just because they were a humble servant of God, they didn't demand them. If their motives were right, then there's nothing wrong with it. And ours can be too. Our, our motives must be constantly checked. That's why we spend, should spend daily time with God to let him check our hearts. I remember the passage from last week in the memory verse for this month. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You notice it starts with heart where motives lie. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength means you love God with your motives first. Love your neighbor as yourself means you've got to get rid of some selfish motives. Now add the fact that Jesus will judge you on those. On these two commands, he will judge us on these, and he will look at our hearts. What was our motive? What, what was our motivation? So we need to, to work it, and it takes work. It's not, it doesn't just happen. Let our love be motivated by a desire to serve and please God, to obey with sincere and pure motives. Because God loves us, and he gave Jesus for us. He saved our soul. And the only way your name gets written in that book of life that he, I read about a minute ago is if you trust Jesus for forgiveness of your sins against God. It's all of grace. You can't earn your way into the book of life. You can't do your way into the book of life because the only judge is also the only savior for our souls. The only judge, he's also the savior. Know him now and you won't be judged harshly. But if you, don't wait, if you wait till then to know him, it'll be everlasting too late and the lake of fire will be your destiny. So Jesus unveils in this passage today the deity of the Messiah and the implications of that truth and that he will be the judge one day. You know, the world out there, they hope and they create all kinds of ways to make the next life eternal peace they're all looking for some way to get into this eternal peace this eternal bliss with some sort of eternal entity a lot of religions are out there i mean every religion has some sort of ultimate achievement you're trying to get to but also even those every human immortal soul knows that there's an afterlife whether they accept it or believe it they can say they're an atheist they can say they don't believe anything after they can they can say but deep down inside if they were really honest with their their soul they would know that there's an immortal soul that lives in them and that and that you were seeking some sort of eternal bliss eternal safety after this life is over that there's going to be some sort of judgment there's going to be some sort of reckoning but you know there is only one source there's only one judge and there's only one way and god spoke it clearly he made it very clear from genesis 3 all the way through the bible there is only one god to worship and he's only got one savior he to provide for you he put it down in words he's preserved it over the centuries 
about the only one who can give us access to heaven. And we need to believe that. We need to trust that. Jesus is the only answer and the only judge for the souls of humanity. So trust him. Trust him alone for your eternity. That's the bottom line this morning. Know that he's the only way and that he's the only judge and he's the only savior. So let's have a time of prayer right now where we just take to God our motives, the things that are in our hearts that we may be hanging on to, to, to make sure our hearts are good with God, our salvation is good with God, that we are not just faking it or thinking we're saved. And let's make sure that we can express these motives in the correct way and to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's, let's pray about that this morning as we have a time of pastoral prayer. We'll pray silently for a minute or so, and then I'll close us out. You can come to the front if you'd like. Let's have a time of prayer.